And now, The Travel Show with Arthur and Pauline Fromer. Your chance to talk to the publishers of the nation's best-selling travel guide series. Whether your travel destination is around your corner or any corner of the world, the Fromers will help you get the most out of your travel experience and save you money at the same time. And now, Arthur and Pauline Fromer. And this is The Travel Show, in which we talk about vacations. Welcome. I'm Arthur Fromer. And I'm Pauline Fromer. And in the time ahead, we're going to be talking about travel. And you could join us in that conversation. Here's how. If you have a travel question or comment, if you're a travel expert, shoot me an email to fromertravelshow at yahoo.com. And even if you don't want to come on the show, we hope you'll visit us at our website, which is fromers.com, F-R-O-M-M-E-R-S.com. Lots of great information for planning your next vacation there. And follow us on social media. You'll find the word Fromers on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, on Pinterest, you name it. And we have a very witty, fun feed. I think you'll enjoy following us. Now, Pauline, it's about this time of year that a great many Americans begin thinking about a vacation trip to Europe, a trip that they schedule for the European high season of spring, summer, and fall in the year 2020. But when they also begin planning a budget for such a trip, when they consider how much money it's going to cost, they find that predicting what the airfare will be for their trip is just too difficult and unpredictable a task. That's because such airfares are dependent on the degree uh, unpredictable cost of aviation fuel. They are also dependent on the unpredictable success or failure of the current uh, efforts by the Boeing Corporation to resume the tragic 737 MAX yeah, aircraft. big issue. And finally, they are dependent on whether the best-known budget airlines, by which I'm referring to Norwegian Air, to uh, WOW Airlines, to Level Airlines, to, to whether or not they will continue in business next year, which is also unpredictable. But some Americans have begun to feel that there is one good, favorable, and predictable air fare development that they can rely on, which is the recent tendency of some of the most famous standard airlines in all the business to occasionally reduce isolated airfares to the levels that are usually associated with the small budget airlines, as amazing as it may seem. There have been very occasional airfares as low as $350 for either one week or even round trip flights to Europe. And these are airfares that have been found, amazingly enough, on, on ritzy airlines like Iberia, like Lufthansa, like American Airlines, like uh, SAS. They are on occasional flights. Let me stress this occasional flights, not frequent ones, but in every month of the year. Now, why is this happening? It's because the sophisticated computer programs of the big airlines have recently been able to pinpoint advanced flights that are either uh, selling slowly or that are half empty. And rather than operate flights 
that are half empty. These major airlines have learned how they can fill such flights with unusually low airfares that eventually sell out the flights in question. And Pauline, I'm not exaggerating. There are actually airfares of $358 round trip to Europe that are offered by such ritzy airlines as American Airlines, as Lufthansa, as, as, as SAS and Iberia. I emphasize that these are only on occasional dates, but they are on enough of them to capture the attention of budget-minded travelers. Now, what does this mean for our uh, listeners? It means that from now on, when you are looking for an airfare, you can't limit yourself to simply pulling up on your computer the uh, well-known budget airlines, namely Norwegian Air, uh, Wow Airlines, are sure. level. You have to go to all of the major airlines that are servicing your destination. You have to devote at least an hour, maybe even an hour and a half to the task. But do that. You may, in fact, discover a remarkable, absolutely something that would would have been unthinkable years ago, an airfare of $350 round trip Hmm. between various U.S. cities and and Europe. So not just New York, but other cities as well. Washington, D.C. is a heavy source of such. They they exist, Pauline, and they mean you have to change your method of, of making use of your computer depending on how skillful you are at using a computer you can find these remarkable airfares. And in fact, there are now one or two websites that you can go to of people who will charge you a small fee for actively watching the the array of airfares that are offered even by the famous uh, standard hmm. airlines. Now, uh, so much for that topic. Pauline, let me move on to something else. Depending on when you actually hear this broadcast... You are now either a year away or even less than a year away from the time when all persons flying within the United States will need to to present a so-called real ID, R-E-A-L-I-D, in order to board their airplane. And although a U.S. passport will fulfill that need... The vast majority of Americans do not possess such passports, and therefore we have to uh, go to the various states to see what they are requiring for the issuance of a so-called real idea. We have discussed uh, the other ideas before, but the subject is so important as to require a more skillful and detailed analysis of it. And although some Americans claim to be able to obtain real IDs online, I've seen that, although I've never seen an explanation of how they do it, most of us will need to make a visit to obtain one from our local motor vehicle bureau, the place where we either get a a, a, a auto license or renew an auto license. You would be well advised to go there even if you do if you yourself do not drive a car huh. a real id is a proper identity card that has a small red or black star in its upper right hand corner you obtain one by submitting at least two proofs of your personal and your residential identity like a social security card it would obviously be one of them and possibly another card or, or an envelope addressed to you at your residence among others it's best uh, to phone the motor vehicle bureau in advance 
to learn exactly what your a state will recognize for a real idea. Well, I, certain I states, their their driver's licenses do work. You don't have to just get this card. In certain That's states, right. their their driver's licenses are compliant. Will be reclined. I will yeah. have the little star. And we'll, right. I don't know about the star, but <laughs> I, I think they will have to. In fact, I've I've seen warnings which state that there are a lot of people who think that they're simply by going to their motor vehicle bureau to get their driver's license, they can automatically get, walk. Well, out they with have the to know ID. that their state is compliant, so you have yeah. to research that. There are fifty different states with different rules, and yep. some of them will not give you a real ID until unless you show up with multiple forms of identity, huh. such as your personal identity and your residential identity. The jam-ups to issue such cards will get fearful as we approach the October 1 date. The, the uh, real IDs must be issued, must be in your possession by October 1 of next year. That's less than a year from now, or else you will be denied boarding of even a domestic flight. They've been stopping people at the airport, at the security station now, people who are getting on the airline with a non-compliant driver's license (laughs) and telling them, you'd better get on the the stick, you'd better fix this before next year, because you're not going to be able to fly next. Year. I have seen a great many go- warnings of that sort that are beginning to appear on the internet, yes. in which in which the TSA personnel are going out of their way to make announcements over loudspeaker systems directly to a person checking in for a flight and warning them you must get a real ID. Yes. Now there is a counter. Uh, effort going on by some people to get the to get the requirement overturned. There are a lot of members of Congress who are amazed that they that they. Uh, well, this has been in place this, kind this of si- since nine eleven, and there have been a lot of delays. I wouldn't count on your politicians delaying this again. I think it's finally going to happen. It's going to be interesting to see. You know what? What finally happens here? Uh, but but do check. You need to know if your state is compliant. If they aren't, you either have to apply for a real ID or you have to get a passport. And there are going to be a lot of tragedies suffered by people who fail to have yeah, one. Yeah, we have to take a break. We'll be right back after these messages. Listening to the Fromer Travel Show, I'm Pauline Fromer here with my father, Arthur Fromer. And on the phone, we have Lauren Sloss. She is a contributor to the New York Times. And Lauren, welcome back to the Travel Show. I got to tell you, I am so glad you wrote this article because I've been going to cities and they look like playpens because all over the sidewalks are e-bikes and scooters. And you dealt with this topic in how to travel using an e-bike or scooter. So for people who haven't seen this, can you describe the phenomena we're seeing in cities around the world right now? Absolutely. Thanks, Pauline. So cities around the world, from U.S. to Latin America to Europe, you'll see, you'll notice a number of scooters and bikes kind of strewn about, not necessarily docked to anything. And you'll also see people whizzing around on them pretty quickly, going uphill, 
um, often a bike lane, sometimes not. And these are all electric bikes and scooters. And it kind of depends on the company and kind of depends on the country. But by and large, these companies can be unlocked or these uh, devices can be unlocked using your phone um, and left wherever you'd like. Of course, there are limits to that. There are usually parameters where uh, you can and can't leave your vehicle. You can't, say, take it completely across town or to a different city. But in general, it gives you a great deal of freedom to be able to explore a city without having to deal with a rental shop, without having to find a specific pickup or drop-off point, and to be able to get places pretty quickly as well. Right. So so just to, to clarify... In cities like, I've seen this in San Diego, you'll also find this in Barcelona, you'll find this in Latin American capitals, you will notice on the street corner a bunch of, uh, what are they called? I guess you call them scooters. They, they look like right. things that kids use. They, you know, <laughs> it's, it's like there's a handlebar and then there's kind of like a skateboard thing at the bottom and you would think that you would have to push it with your foot, but actually these are electronic, and often they're just strewn on the ground because companies like Uber have created offshoots to do short-term rentals for these devices, right? Right, and the scooters that you're referring to, you can call them kick scooters as well, and they are not dissimilar from kids' toys, right? but because they have are electrically powered, you will need to kick off to kind of get it started, but then using your handlebars, you can accelerate, decelerate, and brake and get around pretty quickly. It's pretty fun, too. Well, it's fun, but is it safe? Well, I think like any new device or vehicle, especially one with electric power that moves a bit more quickly than you might be used to, there's a learning curve. And testing out a vehicle like this, if you haven't used one before, in a pretty uncongested place, maybe a park, somewhere where there isn't a high volume of traffic is a really good idea before you take it to the streets and use it to get around. So you're using these these uh, devices, but do they come with helmets? I mean, that's what I would be worried about in terms of the safety. Usually, actually, they don't. And I spoke to a number of companies about this, and a lot of, a lot of the companies themselves will, when they launch in a new city, do helmet giveaways host events. Of course, this isn't terribly useful if you're just visiting for a few days on a trip. Right. If you are visiting, it's the safest thing you can do is to travel with your own helmet. Mm-hmm. However, if you're not looking to do that, if it feels like too much space, then I would recommend looking up bike shops in the city. Some might have some available for rent. You could, of course, buy one there. But wearing a helmet is certainly the safest and best thing that you can do. Well, uh, you you mentioned this in your article. There are now collapsible helmets. In fact, that was my best Christmas gift last year, although when I wear it, I get this really weird mark in the middle of my forehead. It looks like, oh, I've, like I'm well, a, a, a scientific study. It, it's very odd looking. <laughs> but anyway, but these collapsible helmets are very packable. Absolutely. And that that is a good option, especially as there are more and more on the market. They're becoming more affordable. And as to the mark on your forehead, I can't speak to that. But (laughs) helmets are certainly the safest, if not the most fashionable option available. Right. We are speaking with Lauren Sloss, who wrote a fascinating article called How to Travel Using an E-Bike or Scooter. So uh, 
I live in New York City where the, there's the city bikes, and I love them. I get around on bike all over the city. I'm a member, so I have a yearly membership, so I can just pick these up, and if I use them within a half an hour, it's pretty much free for me within my yearly membership fee. How do these e-bikes? How do these e-bikes and scooters work in terms of costs? In terms of cost, similar to getting a ride through Uber or Lyft or another rideshare app, it's going to charge you an initial rental fee and then by the distance and time that you use it. And it kind of varies by app, by device. Um, but as you start riding them around, you'll get bills automatically in your phone, similar again to those rides, and you'll be able to start tracking how much they cost you. And honestly, they're not necessarily the cheapest option, particularly for the electric bikes, but they are fun and while not necessarily a perfect option, they're more environmentally friendly than renting a car or even taking a shared car. Well, let's talk about that. Why are they more environmentally friendly? I mean, they, they are running on power, right? It's not you just pushing yourself around. Right. They're running on power, but they're running on electric power versus cars, which, of course, there are electric vehicles. The vast majority are still running on fuel, which which uh, results in emissions. Now, the electric scooters and bikes, while they run on power, still need to be charged. And a number of these companies actually purchase carbon offsets to make up for that, to make up for the energy used. And as I say in the article, this is not a perfect zero-sum game system. They're still kind of figuring things out. We're still kind of figuring out exactly what this looks like in the landscape of green travel. But as a new option, it's better than many that we have, and it's exciting to kind of consider where things could go with it. Right. Although, as you start the article by saying, in certain areas where these bikes and and scooters are unregulated, they've been causing hazards on sidewalks. You have them just kind of strewn about because people don't have to put them in a specific dock. They can just drop them in a, in a large area. It has to you have to be within the area, but you could just drop them on the sidewalk, which makes some cities, San Diego, look terrible. The last time I was there, it just looked like there were all these really careless teenagers all over the city, just dropping their stuff everywhere. I know what you mean. And I'm based in San Francisco, where a number of these companies did kind of launch without a lot of regulation. There were huge problems, as I mentioned in the article. The city promptly slapped them on the wrist and told them to pack up and get out. But it was a good learning experience as well. The city began working more closely with the companies, the companies with the city, and figuring out ways to avoid hazards like that. Right. And again, well, it's far a, from perfect. Yeah, a fascinating piece. Once again, we've been speaking with Lauren Sloss. Pick up her article, How to Travel Using an E-Bike or Scooter. Thank you, Lauren. Welcome back to The Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer, here with my father, Arthur Fromer. And on the line, we have the very well-rested Christine Sarkis. She is the deputy executive editor of the online travel magazine, Smarter Travel. Uh, welcome to The Travel Show, Christine. 
Thank you. Glad to be here. And I'm assuming you're well rested because you have a terrific article on your site right now that's a, that's called 33 Ways to Sleep Better at a Hotel. And let's just dig right into it. The best way is to get a quiet room. But how will you know in advance if the room you're going for is quiet? So you may not know far in advance. There are certain, you know, sometimes when you book um, online, you can make special requests. Sure. But the thing to do is just once you're there, once you're checking in, you know, you're talking to the front desk people, and these are people who generally, they know the hotel pretty well, right? and they can sort of play room matchmaker for you and with your needs, um, as long as they're not booked up capacity. Sure, but um, there are certain items in a hotel, not in, in a hotel room, but regarding the placement of the room that will probably help guarantee you acquired a room, right? Exactly. So you just want to be really upfront about your goal of having that quiet room. So this can mean like, you know, choosing a location that's, say, midway down a hallway that's generally going to be quieter because you're not generally as close to, like, elevators, ice machines, exits, even housekeeping closets. Mm. These are places where people congregate, where there's machinery sounds, you know, and these are, if you can sort of stay away from those, Mm -hmm. um, that's one of the keys. As well, where in the hotel you are can count. If there's an outdoor pool or some other type of attraction that gets noisy, that can also make your room pretty loud, right? Exactly. On the one hand, like a room overlooking a pool sounds lovely. Like some hotels even sell them as like that's a a bonus. That's something that's a nice view, right? Mm -hmm. But you have this problem where um, pools are places where people congregate, especially, you know, in the evening. And the sound will bounce off of the water in a way that just it really carries. Right. Um, another uh, place that if you if you have a room overlooking like a parking lot, uh, that can be louder, especially at um, off hours. Another thing is that if you get into your room and you notice that you can see like garbage or recycling bins. <laughs> oh, yeah. Window, you want to call down to the desk and ask what time the trash is collected, because if it's early or late, that's going to wake you up. That's going to ruin Even if you have started a good night's sleep, that's going to interrupt. I was once in a hotel in Melbourne, Australia, and at 3 a.m. in the morning, this big truck arrived to clear all of the glasses from the pub next door. (laughs) And it just, it sounded like I was sleeping in a glass factory, just the crashing. It went on for a full hour. Oh, I can imagine. It's like, it's like a, like a, a waterfall of glass. Right. Yeah. We are speaking with Christine Sarkis, who is the deputy executive editor for the online travel magazine, Smarter Travel. And Christine, I found also that light in rooms can be a big, big problem. So what can you do to avoid that issue? That doesn't necessarily wake you up, but I think it it makes it harder to go to sleep. Absolutely. So in terms of the trying to sort of set the set the the tone and the scene for going to sleep. Um, Some hotels have blackout curtains. You can actually, that's something you can ask about when you book. Mm -hmm. Um, Another thing is to bring bring your own eye mask, but be sure to bring one that's contoured. Uh, You know, the ones that you get on the plane, those are usually pretty cheap ones and they Mm. can sit against your eyes. Yeah. And not only is that not terribly comfortable, but it sort of restricts your eye movement during sleep, which can interrupt sleep a little bit. Really? That's fascinating. I didn't know that. Yeah. So then um, another thing to do is, um, you know, taking like a little bit of melatonin before bed. That helps your body sort of, that that gives your body sleep signals and that can help you fall asleep. Um, That actually reminds me, do you know about this, um, the first night effect? No. 
What's so, that? Um, there's this thing called the first night effect, which is like generally scientifically acknowledged, hmm. that it's just hard to sleep well uh, the first night in a new place. And sort of the theory as of 2016, say, is that half of your brain is sort of on night watch in a new environment. Huh. Um, so it's a little bit like how dolphins only put half their brains to sleep at a time. Um, so the, the idea there, I think, is just that, like, you're going to have to do some extra work to sleep well in a hotel room. Right? Well, because yeah. Yeah. So let's talk where... about some of those uh, habits you should put into place. But that's fascinating on the first night effect. So maybe you may want to, if you have the option of staying a longer time in one hotel rather than moving from one to the next, that might be something that, that comes into play when you're making that decision. Yeah, that's a great, great point. And another thing is, if you have, if you have like a big event, Come in a day or two early so that you do have time to just sort of, you know, relax into the new, the new environment and get better sleep. That's, right. If you have that ability, it's a, great, it's a great idea to consider. Interesting. All right. Let's talk a little bit about sleep habits. So you talked about taking melatonin. What are some other things you should do when you're in a ho- new hotel room for the first time just to standardize your getting to sleep routine? So there are so many of these and there, you know, you can adapt them to um, sort of your personal style. So if you're interested in reading more about it, again, we talked about this, this is 33 tips, right? There's a lot of tips. Yeah. (laughs) Um, You can check it out on smartertravel.com. Just search. um, There's a little search box. If you type in 33 or ways to sleep better at a hotel, it'll pop right up. So some of those... Um, ideas are, um, you know, and some of this is basic sleep hygiene, like only sleep in bed. It's tempting to watch TV from hmm. from the bed in a hotel room because that's usually how it's oriented. Right. Um, you might want to, you know, treat yourself and eat on the bed because it's not something you do normally um, or work on the bed. Try to do that not on the bed. Hmm. Um, you really want your bed just to be for sleeping. Right. Another thing which especially comes into play on those first nights if you're getting into a city sort of late if you're eating late, eat light. Mm. Um, digestion is going gonna, is gonna to keep you awake and not, not let you settle into a deep sleep. Right. As well, a, a hot bath can often help if your room has a bathtub, and not exactly. many do. Well, yeah. it's a great article. Once again, we've been speaking with Christine Sarkis, the Deputy Executive Editor for SmarterTravel.com. Read their article. It's called 33 Ways to Sleep Better at a Hotel. Thank you so much, Christine, for appearing on The Travel Show. Thanks so much for having me. listening to the Fromer Travel Show on the line, we have Vebov Segal. He is the consultant for North America for The Economist magazine. Welcome to the Travel Show, Vebov. Thank you so much for having me on today. Well, I wanted to have you on because The Economist ran what I thought was a really fascinating survey of what they thought were the most safe cities in the world. And you took a lot of different factors into account when deciding on a city's safeness. Can you tell us what those factors were before we get to what the cities were? Certainly. This is, um, well, the Safe Cities Index 
um, uses a very um, a complex and comprehensive framework that assesses urban safety at the city level across four uh, key domains. The first one is digital security. We have infrastructure security, health security, and personal security. Each of these domains or pillars of safety assessment include a variety of input and output indicators. Um, input indicators are those indicators that can be directly influenced by interventions and uh, policy, and these are preparedness-related indicators. Preparedness? Preparedness, ah, exactly. okay. And uh, we also have output indicators, which track actual city-level performance in terms of, um, you know, that they're basically KPIs that, that track how safe a city uh, Can you say what KPIs are? Because I don't know, and I probably think our listeners don't either. Yeah, absolutely. Um, these are key performance metrics or indicators I see. that evaluate at a very high level to what extent the interventions or the preparedness measures have rippled through to improve the safety at the city level. So it was a very interesting list, especially because it's changed from last year. For obvious reasons, Hong Kong has fallen out of the top 10 of, of safest cities. But let's talk about the cities that remain. What are the top three cities in, that are the safest in terms of digital safety, in terms of personal safety, and the two other factors? Absolutely. So looking at digital safety, the top three ranked cities are Tokyo, Singapore, and Chicago. Um, for health security, we have Osaka at number one, Tokyo at number two, and Seoul from South Korea. But let's look overall. Three. The overall uh, uh, safest cities for all the factors put together, what were those? The top three cities uh, at the overall level in the Safe Cities Index are Tokyo, Singapore, and Osaka. So interestingly, you need to be in Asia to be very safe. Why do you think that is? Why is why are these Asian cities ranking so much higher than those in Europe or North America? That's a very interesting point uh, that 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 you make here. Um, but I would I would steer this conversation less towards um, the geography of the cities, but more towards um, two things. The first being the income class uh, that the city belongs to, and the second being the level of development. So these are these cities are in well from two countries, Japan and Singapore, which is a which is a city state, of course. Right, and uh, all three of them reflect these two uh, key factors, which are they are both very, very upper-income countries. Sure. And secondly, they are both, um, they, they are both um, well, what, what we shouldn't bother about is the geography. What we should be looking at is the income level. Well, I have to say, when I was... Highly l- developed. Right. Sorry. When I was looking at your list, I was really surprised to see that of the United States cities, Chicago and Washington, D.C. were in the top 10 for safety because... I think of those cities as having high crime rates, and Chicago has a high murder rate. How did that factor in? That's a a very interesting finding. Let me first talk about Washington, D.C., which ranks seventh. Uh Uh, Washington, D.C. records a stellar performance across 
the three domains of digital health and infrastructure security falling within um, the top five under digital security, uh, falling within the top 10 in both health and infrastructure security. Yeah. The problem comes when we talk about personal security in, in Washington, D.C. And Chicago. Ran- yeah, we only have about a minute left. So, yes, let's yeah. go to w- this. Washington, D.C. and Chicago, they record a stellar performance across digital health and infrastructure security, but a much weaker performance coming in 23rd and 26th out of 60 cities in, ah, in that domain. Interesting. So we're talking mostly to travelers on this show. So that might be something they want to take into account when they're looking at places to, to visit. Of course, the Asian cities you mentioned are very safe. For anybody who wants to see this study online, where can they look? Um, we have a website Uh, on which the study is launched. I will share a link with you soon after the conversation. Well, (laughs) that won't work because we're live on radio. So uh, if you go to theeconomist.com, you should be able to see the study. Thank you so much for appearing on The Travel Show. All right. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Listening to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer here with my dad, Arthur Fromer. And you know, one of my, or part of my job is going to industry events so I can hear what the big mucky mucks have to say about what they're doing. And sometimes, you know, sometimes it's a lot of PR that's spouted. But I was at an event today at which several high-powered people spoke, and some of it was quite interesting, I have to say. They had the CEO of Delta Airlines on, and he was talking about, he got a question from the audience Uh, saying, how is Delta approaching the flight shaming movement, which is people who are being shamed in Europe for taking too many flights and contributing too much to climate change. And he said that in 2012, Delta made a public pledge to not grow its carbon footprint any bigger than it was in 2012. And even though the company has grown 25 percent, claims to have limited it. He I'm claims to have amazed. He, by that. he claims to have limited it. And here's how he says how? he how by using more uh, uh, fuel efficient planes. They've been uh, changing over their fleet to newer planes that use less fuel and thus emit less carbon by using uh, biodiesel fuels or biofuels that are created from waste and also by doing offsets. So I guess they are paying to grow trees in the Amazon uh, and that is why he is saying that, 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 that they are now carbon neutral. They're not carbon neutral, but but attempting to be more carbon neutral. Well, Dean, I find that absolutely amazing, absolutely amazing that a, a CEO of a company as big and as large as Delta Airlines, one of the largest of, of all airlines in yeah. the world today, mm-hmm. 
should have reached this decision way back in the year in 2012. 2012. No, I thought yeah. it was quite impressive. They also had the uh, CEO of American Express Travel Agency, which is a massive travel agency. They have 5,000 people all over the world speaking 36 languages, booking travel. And they were talking about how 40%, they did a survey, 40% of travelers think finding the perfect travel experience is harder than finding a significant other. <laughs> and they they said that uh, that a lot of people don't travel right now because they're overwhelmed by travel information, that there's just too much pelting them and too many choices, and that they don't know how to make a decision. Now, this is, of course, their way of saying use a travel agent. It would be our way of saying use a travel guidebook. Uh, but, but apparently... There is information overload in the travel industry, she was saying, and that is depressing the number of people who are traveling. I don't know if it's true, but it was a very interesting discussion. Um, you can I'll probably write about this on Fromers.com, so do check out our website. We have to take a break for this hour. To those of you who are traveling, a hearty bon voyage. <laughs> 